You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Uzma. And I'm Zeba from Momming Well Muslim Podcast. And you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. My dream is always the same. It's just another day in hell. I stand on the bone marrow transplant unit. There are no windows. Suddenly the building starts to shake. The ceiling cracks, letting in rays of sunlight, and the ground rumbles below. Sadness, grief, and despair spew from the floor. They rise as black lava, erupting from the innards of the building, and drag me to the street. I am swept forward as black death encompasses the earth and moves to envelop the sun. It carries me to the east. Always to the east. I've never thrown a punch, never been in a fight or carried a gun. So if you ask me what it's like to do battle, I only have a limited set of experiences to draw from. I did, however, catch a glimpse of the desperation of war during residency when I spent a month in the bone marrow transplant unit. I felt continuously under fire, attacked from all sides, desperate. I experienced death every day. It wasn't just the elderly. It was also the young. Mothers, fathers, children. No one was spared. The bone marrow transplant program during residency was large. There were 50 patients on the unit and then 20 to 30 scattered amongst the oncology floors. We had 10 admissions a day and the same number of discharges. On average, one patient died every 24 hours. The job of taking care of those patients fell on two fellows, two residents, one attending physician, and countless dedicated nurses. There are many beautiful, life-affirming stories that occur on a bone marrow transplant floor. This is not one of those. I remember my last day on the unit. I spent the morning avoiding ambush. There were no codes. All our patients survived the night. I stepped into Mrs. P's room gingerly. Mrs. P had been in the hospital for over six months. She had a stubborn lymphoma that persisted despite treatment. She knew that she would never return home. She knitted every morning as she watched the news. As with so many patients, our conversation moved from cordial greetings to a discussion of world events. I went through the motions of my examination as she recounted the most recent atrocities. They were particularly horrible today. We did this every morning, she telling me who recently died or was killed or robbed, and I feigning interest, although in reality I had lost touch with life outside the unit. The world could fall apart around me, but I was too busy, scurrying after labs, running codes, talking to family members. 
secretly trying to protect myself from the death and destruction that surrounded me. If you listen closely to the discussions that we had every morning, the essence of what was said would sound something like this. Doctor, I watch TV and see that in the world things are happening and I am still here. And dutifully, I would respond, yes, yes, bad things are happening in the world, and yet, thankfully, you are still here. Mrs. P's days were limited, and my days on the unit were almost over. I worked 12 hours a day, every day, for a month. My time at home in between shifts was surreal. I would sleep, eat, have conversations, mostly exhausted bridges to my next stint on the unit. I had become a robot, a zombie. I was withdrawing. It was just another day in hell. I sat down for rounds that morning. Mrs. P was right. Things were happening in the world, and strangely, I couldn't relate. The TV was blaring the latest news. My attending was sitting down with his daily tab and being prepped by the other residents. The hum of the nursing station had reached a fevered pitch. I glanced at my progress notes and realized that I forgot to add the date and time. I looked at the clock on my pager. 10.45 a.m., 9-11-2001. The world had instantly changed, and it would take a good deal of time and spiritual healing to realize that it wasn't just another day of death and destruction on the unit. Zeba Hassan and Uzma Jafri are the team behind the podcast Mommying While Muslim, where you can join them around the kitchen table as they discuss the topics that matter most to Muslim moms. I had the pleasure of virtually meeting them at Podcast Movement this year. Usman Zeba, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It was really a poignant moment in my life. And I'm wondering with you guys, was 9-11 like the early seeds of the podcast, Mommy and Wall Muslim? Is that where it kind of all started for both of you? I don't think 9-11 was a seed for the podcast for us. It was more a critical point for us where our lives in America changed, you know, because our status as Americans changed if we had ever had status as Americans at that point. Zeba, talk about that a little bit. What were the immediate impacts of 9-11 on your life? What were your life circumstances at the time? To be honest with you, my husband and I had just returned from literally the night before September 10th from a cruise to Alaska. And I I remember walking through the airport, and this is so interesting. There were signs, a lot of people would buy Alaskan fish knives from Alaska specifically. And I remember standing behind a couple that had purchased these knives and the the lady the attendant was like you can't put those in the check-in um the check-in bag you, you have to put it in your oat like your on the on board packet what is it called like your the check-in the check-in bag so you had to, they had to take it out of their luggage and put it actually in their check-in bag that they were bringing on the airplane and I just remember like kind of chuckling to my husband I'm like that's a weird thing I wouldn't want to be behind those people on a plane mm-hmm. literally September 10th our flight was delayed coming into Chicago. My husband was actually scheduled to go to New York the next morning. And because our flight to Alaska was delayed, he called his secretary literally at the airport and said, can you push me on a later flight? Because there's no way I'm going to make the six o'clock um, flight at the time. Of course, by God's grace, he missed that flight. He would have been in the financial district at the time. That's where he was set to go. 
but because our flight from Alaska came in and was delayed, he pushed his morning flight. So, and honestly, at the time, I didn't even know this. I went to work the next morning, uh, totally fine. I worked um, in event management for LaSalle Bank, which is AB and AMRO. I think now it's Bank of America in Chicago. And we were, I'm about a, a block away at this point from the Sears Tower now. I don't even know what it's called now, but it's not Sears Tower. It has a new name now. <laughs> it has a new name. It keeps, but to me, it will forever be Sears Tower. So I was right on LaSalle Street. You're in Chicago. So I was right on LaSalle Street, took the, the brown line in. My husband and I lived East Lakeview at the time. And we were there and we were just about to open the department. And one of my colleagues was like, there's something happening on the news. And I was like, what do you mean? And sure enough, the first planes um, went into the the tray tower. At this point, I didn't know my husband (laughs) wasn't going to New York. So I'm trying to scramble to call him. And of course, if you remember being in Chicago at the time, or I would imagine any metropolitan city, none of the cell phones were going through. I tried, we didn't have a landline to be honest with you, because we only really used our cell phones couldn't get through. I'm slightly panicked because I'm like, did he get on the flight? Because we both leave early in the morning. I'm like, did he get on the flight? Did he not get on the flight? It wasn't until I think the 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 lines cleared up around 11, 1130. And he, he managed to call me. He's like, I did not get on the flight, but I'm coming to pick you up because trying to get on the trains to go back was a nightmare. And so we just you know, the sense of chaos. I was, you know, just out of college, just, this was my first job. We had just returned from a trip. I hadn't even unpacked the night before, not knowing where everybody was or my family, the sense of pure chaos. Cause you have to remember, we were experiencing this as Americans as well. At that point, we didn't know who, what, where, why Al Qaeda was not even on on our minds at all. And it was later that we found out we had the double whammy of finding out that it was a group of so identified as Muslim people that had taken credit for this horrific act. But we're dealing with the effects, watching the bodies fall, you know, feeling terrible. Like I could still remember what I was wearing, what I was dressed, like the relief and seeing that my husband did not get on that flight to New York So it definitely started our journey as being more identifiably American Muslim in the sense that you almost, we had to take that title back. We had always been Muslim in America, but now all of a sudden we had to kind of take that ownership of being American Muslims because we were now also being blamed for this thing that had happened on our own soil. Usma, can you draw a line mentally and emotionally in your head between what it felt like to be a Muslim American before 9-11 and what it felt like after? Oh, yeah. You know, I feel like othering always happened in America because that's just kind of, unfortunately, part of our history and our culture. And, you know, maybe a lot of it happened out of pure intentions, like, oh, you're so different. And where are you from? Well, I was born in Chicago. But, you know, I was, because that question always came up, I would just say, I'm from Pakistan, because in my mind, if you're asking me where I'm from, 
that means you don't think I'm from here. So let's just skip all the unnecessary history. And I'm from Pakistan. There you go. Oh, but you speak English so good is what I would get because I grew up in Texas. And, you know, that would be like a double double knife to my heart because, oh, my goodness, the grammar. Uh, uh, and it was it was like that. But I would say like I felt othered a lot less before 9-11 because I grew up on a street in Texas where there was a Portuguese family. There was a Thai, a Vietnamese, a half Irani, half American, a Mexican family, a couple of black families. And we all lived on the same street. And my earliest and fondest memory is when Hurricane Alicia hit Houston back in the early 1980s and nobody in the neighborhood had electricity. And we all had to cook. Everybody had little kids. And I remember my mom making a pizza in the fireplace, like (laughs) old school, like cave woman style. She made giant pizzas in the fireplace. And we took all of our food out into the driveway where all the other neighbors had brought their food out into the driveway. And you could just go and have an international buffet while you're waiting for the hurricane to strike. So (laughs) it was... It was such a magical time as a kid to be able to run through these houses and run through these families and know that, you know, I was accepted. And there was plenty of white families there, too. And it was our next door neighbors were white people. And we thought they were so incredible and magical because they had twin girls who were like bright blondes. And they were our best friends. Like if I ever felt like I needed to go to a safe place, I went to their house. And it was just back and forth. I think my mom may have babysat for their kids. And that may be why we were so close. But, you know, it was a very different, very naive time. And maybe I'm looking at it as an adult now as, you know, with some nostalgia. But I have never been able to create that moment after 9-11. And I'm afraid that my children will never have that Hurricane Alicia moment or Hurricane Alicia experience with our neighbors now. Zeba, it's a really salient point because it, it almost feels like before 9-11, you could be herded into the group of others as a mm-hmm. whole, and it was fairly nondescript. But after 9-11, you became other slash Muslim, which had mm-hmm. its own sense of meeting and effect on your day-to-day life. Right. No, you're 100% right. Like before you'd be like, oh, what are you? And I, actually, it's funny because my maiden name was Hussein. So I got a little bit you know, in fifth, sixth, seventh grade with the Iraqi war and Saddam Hussein, but it was more like funny, like Zeba Hussein, because I used to sing. And so they'd be like Zeba Hussein. It was just more funny versus mean or aggressive. And you'd kind of get used to it. Yes. No, I'm not related. You realize he's Iraqi. We're not Iraqi. And the concept of all of that, obviously, you know, like nobody understood that concept. So you did have to explain a little bit or because I didn't necessarily fit the mold of what they thought a Muslim person would be, you know, you would have to kind of like explain yourself a little bit more, but it was never, it was more like to Uzma's point, like more out of a inquisitiveness versus defensiveness. And now post 9-11, it became, I'm definitely having to apologize or feel like I have to apologize or have a qualifier. Yes, I'm Muslim, but, or they'd be like, oh, you're Muslim, but you're not like those other guys. There was always this huge, but 
or it was, how is it possible that you are, or, you know, it was, it was more of this, like, there was a little bit of an undertone of aggressiveness or animus. And it could be potentially because you do have all these macro and microaggressions that have occurred since then. So you are possibly looking at it from a more defensive perspective. And I, and I own that too. All of a sudden you went from being a reactive, you know, kind of conversational to as soon as anybody kind of asks you, Oh, are you Muslim? And you, you automatically have a little bit of this defensiveness that comes in. And I hate admitting that out loud, to be honest with you. Uzma, it seems to me that 9-11 changed the meaning of the American dream for Muslim Americans. Talk to me a little bit about why your parents came here. What were the circumstances that brought them to the U.S.? For my mom, it was marriage. She had no desire to I guess no plan to ever come to America because she was um, in college at the time, or maybe she was about to graduate. Yeah, she graduated before she got married, but, you know, really had no far-reaching plans or anything like that. My dad, however, grew up with very few opportunities and a very big family, and he was smack dab in the middle of these seven children, and, you know, he was ambitious, and my grandfather saw that, I think, and said, you're not going to be able to accomplish the things here in this developing country that you can should you go. And the opportunity had arisen for him to come to America. It was a lot easier after the 1968 Immigration Act in the United States, whereby we imported brown bodies from overseas rather than cultivate the black and brown bodies we already had on United States soil. Because somehow bringing in more colonized or formerly colonized people would be better for the fabric of America. So he was easily granted access to come to America and he did in his 20s and he loved it. You know, he could reestablish himself and recreate himself here. So for him, it was opportunity. And then obviously, you know, the expectation from back home was that he would get married to a girl from back home and that's how that happened. What was his dream? You know, I think like anybody in any place in the world to be able to provide a safe and stable, financially secure home for his family to be really was all that was there. And my mom just, you know, I'm sure went along for the ride because she had never known any better, except for the later part of her life where she fled East Pakistan as a refugee. So those years when her parents were political prisoners in a camp, and she was basically seeking refuge in West Pakistan with family. Those three years, I think, were hard for her. My dad had pretty much grown up in near poverty his whole life. So America like offered what it does to all people, I think, of developed nations. Did the American dream change after 9-11? I don't think so. I mean, I can't speak for all Americans, but as an American for me, I feel like our dreams were on hold if we had them. You know, like, what does this mean for us? What is it going to look like for us in the next few months and years? Because we didn't get the opportunity to grieve like you did. You know, we all remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when that happened. But as Muslims, our ears are always triggered and our prayers are always immediate. Like, God, don't let it be a Muslim, you know, because we know what that means for us, you know, and it's a physical repercussion and consequence that American Muslims have to face 
because of the acts of people who do not know our lives and context, who don't care at all about our lives and context, and in fact, call us infidels for living in America, so-called secular nation that attacks their nations. So we are complicit in their oppression and brutalization. So we are as much the enemy as somebody who doesn't look overtly Muslim like we do. So we didn't get the opportunity to grieve. We were too busy, I think, in defense mode. Zeba, your father was friends with Uzma's father, and I assume came for similar ideas of prosperity and building a life for family. Did that change? I mean, it seems like your generation faced a very different environment than your parents did after a 9-11. Did it put those attempts at prosperity at risk for you and your siblings and friends? So I am the oldest of four. So I was just in, just graduated from college and just had my first job. My husband is a little bit um, older than I am. That was the scandal at the time. But he he was already a practicing lawyer when we when I met him in college, and so for me personally, it didn't have any. Me as my job did not have any ramifications. My younger siblings were actually in college and high school at the time, so of course they had the emotional stress that would occur that I feel like everybody had to deal with at that time. Did it um, impact? my family unit and my husband, probably, but not till a couple of years later. My husband at the time was the president of the Muslim Bar Association. He actually started and founded that particular chapter in the Chicago land area. Uh, and we were always very actively involved. We would write, you know, write newspaper articles. We were invited actually a couple of times on Oprah, which was kind of super fun in Chicago tonight, which was, I don't even know if it's around today. So like he kind of made as as the president of the Muslim Bar Association, obviously as a lawyer, as somebody who was born and raised here, he kind of was thrust in this um, position of speaking out for American Muslims in the Chicagoland area at the time. So, you know, we thought we're doing our thing. You know, we're the quote unquote normal Muslim people. We're here. We here come in peace. You know, all that stuff that happens, everything that was written or everything that was presented when we would get invited to obviously a lot of interfaith organizations, because I understand that people wanted to know who, what, where, when, how I get it. And for whatever reasons, because we, we looked normal or, or whatever, we were invited to kind of play this media role at the time, my husband specifically, later on, come to find out he was actually let go of his position and of course, at the time, they were like, had nothing to do with September 11th, though people would periodically just leave articles he had written, taped on his door in a question mark or something like these things were happening a little by little bit by little. Obviously, we it was an active case at the time. So can't talk about the details. But ultimately, he was let go on the day that I found out I was pregnant with our first child. So talk about crazy timing. I walk in like so excited to talk to him and he's packing up his office and I'm kind of like, what is going on? And he was like, yeah, let's just get um, on the train and head home. And we'll talk about this later. Needless to say, we didn't chat for about four days afterwards because I think the poor guy was in shock. 
I was in shock because it definitely was not a planned pregnancy. Uh, that's what happened. Nobody tells a 23 year old that, you know, antibiotics negate birth control. Nobody <laughs> told me. And uh, we were both kind of shocked and chagrined. The timing was not the best, but you know what? He, this was our reality. And needless to say, you know, it ultimately led us on our journey here to the DC area. So ultimately everything happens for a reason. But it definitely him playing this media role put his job in jeopardy at the time. And honestly, since then, I can't speak for him personally, but I, as a wife, saw this person who was this Muslim strong suit activist take a step back and say, like, I can't, if, if I, it's either my career or it's my activism but I cannot do both. And it was a shame because it was something that he had a lot of passion with, but he ultimately chose his career, which by God's grace, he's doing well. He's like, and now it's up to you. So it's been thrusted on me to now be more of the activist and he could be the silent behind the scenes. But that ultimately changed the way he approaches things. I definitely saw this happy-go-lucky person become more calculated and political because he never was like that. And he realized, you know, there are legitimate consequences for my action. And he vowed never to be put in a situation where it would be to, you know, provide for his family or to represent Islam publicly. Uzma Zeba brings up a really important point as she talks about what happened to her husband. Did you ever feel the same issue with you or your family or even now with your kids, this idea of separating your financial and work lives from your beliefs and how strongly you want to speak openly about your beliefs because they may have downstream effects on your ability either to make money or make your way in the workplace. I didn't have that same experience. I was in college when it happened and You know, I was part of the Muslim Students Association, which historically has been very politically and socially active and very verbal and vocal about global oppression. And certainly after 9-11 stepped up its game. And, you know, now instead of talking about causes overseas, the cause was us. And so the PR campaigns, Islamic Awareness Week, just, it was always a big deal. But after 9-11, it was so much more meaningful to know that the majority of our fellow students on campus knew us because they had seen us for years. They had eaten with us for years. They had hung out with us for years. So they knew. And, you know, it was the tail end for my education, college education at that point. But I had never known any other way to be than to be vocal. And I had already served as president. And so I had already had a white van outside of my house parked and we did have a landline and it is very easy to know when your lines are tapped Mm -hmm. and they were. And that was okay. When you are president of a Muslim Student Association in the United States, you expect to be profiled. And after 9-11, I remember my parents saying, you guys shouldn't be involved anymore because they're going to watch you. They'll come after you. So our immigrant parents were more afraid of us. And we were confident in the fact that we were born on U.S. soil. And hey, mom and dad, we've been surveilled anyway. 
So it doesn't matter. You know, they are watching us. You know, every time we park outside of an embassy and we're protesting oppression, like they have pictures of us, they know who we are, and that's okay. We have nothing to hide because we're not doing anything wrong. This is, we're exercising our civil rights here by protesting and we're doing it peacefully. There's no reason to worry. I feel like being in medicine privileged me in many, many ways. When 9-11 happened, I was scribing in an emergency room. And what that means is following the doctors around, writing their notes for them, because we used to do handwritten notes before, you know, the advent of electronic health records. And it was literally on one side of the freeway was affluence and mansions. And then the other side of the freeway was the complete opposite. And Right after that week happened, we knew the first person to die in America because he was um, believed to be a Muslim was a Sikh man in Arizona, and he was shot off right away. What we were seeing were Mexican men with beards being stabbed on the other side of the freeway because generally white attackers were calling them Muslim terrorists Mm -hmm. and poking holes in them with knives, like serious stab wounds, and they were they were screaming at them in Spanish because they weren't even English speakers, you know, but these attackers couldn't tell the difference between Spanish and Arabic and hurt these people. And so I was in the ER wearing my hijab and the staff was so protective of me. They wouldn't let me walk to and from the parking lot because they saw what was happening to our patients who weren't even Muslim. So they said, you look so Muslim because I do wear the headscarf we don't want this to happen to you because they could see firsthand. Now in the medical field, did I experience the kind of kinds of things that Zabo's husband did, you know, maybe on a micro level, but nothing could ever be so overt because they needed me. I mean, as a student, as a resident, you are the cheapest labor there is. We, we earn cents on the dollar for the work that we put in. And so you don't want to take off your, you know, indentured servants, maybe that works in Europe, it doesn't work in America, some things are good here still. So I always was protected. And I continue to feel very protected. Because when I walk in, and I say, Hi, I'm Dr. Joffrey, I'll be your doctor today. It breaks so many stereotypes that I think I can actually hear blood cell brain cells exploding (laughs) in their minds because my lack of an accent, my title, my degree, my femininity, my head headdress, it just throws everything they know helter skelter. And so it provides such an opportunity for me to continue to be vocal and continue to be active without fear of any kind of financial repercussions. In the first part of the show, Uzma and Zeba discuss how 9-11 affected their lives as Muslim Americans. After the break, we delve into the complications of mommying while Muslim. But first, this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, 
purposeful cockpit like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. You ever wish you could listen to an Earn and Invest podcast every day? Well, after you get through all of the archives, there is a way you can continue the conversation and have like-minded conversations all the time. That's right. You can go to our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. And you can talk with members of our community about topics very similar to the podcast. We also talk about the economy. Occasionally we talk about politics, whatever is going on in the world. You can find it at the Earn and Invest podcast. Join us. That's at facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest and become part of the conversation in our community. Now back to the show. You know, Usma, there is a fearlessness of youth. And I was thinking that a lot when you were talking about, you know, the Student Muslim Association and having your phone tapped. Has that changed as you've gotten older, especially as you think of your children? Do you ever worry that the underpinnings of some of the fear and racism in America will affect their financial prospects or prospects to get good jobs in our economy? I don't think so. I mean, I guess a lot of that uh, depends on what happens to our economy, uh, especially in the next few years. But that worrying about finances, like that is a little foreign to me because as Muslims were raised to believe that God is the ultimate sustainer and provider and anything we earn isn't from us anyway, it's from him. So we're not asking these potential bosses at interviews for a job. We're just going and appearing for the interview. We're asking God for the job and for the sustenance. So, you know, you could have a bazillion degrees in alphabet soup after your name and not be able to earn a living. You know, we've seen that happen in our times too. So I don't think anything is protective, not your education, not your socioeconomic status, nothing like that. For for me, at least, and for my family, the saving grace is our faith in knowing that God is the provider because he's given us so much more than my husband and I ever grew up with. And gave us the ability to set up our kids in ways that we were never set up and our parents weren't able to do because we, we did the exact opposite of what they did. And, you know, if our kids didn't work, they would be okay. And again, we credit God for giving that, like that wasn't us earning it or deserving it. That was God blessing us and thinking that we were deserving enough to give it to us. Or it could be, is he testing us and testing our children What are you going to do with this blessing that I've given you? It's an interesting way, Zabla, to look at finances, to concentrate more on faith than per se what we earn. I saw you wrote on your blog or webpage, it can be dangerous to conflate religion and culture. And I'm wondering what both of those say about money for your faith. What do the Muslim culture and religion, how do they address money and and how do you teach your children about it? So we're probably a little bit different than Uzma's family because we were impacted 
from from September 11 directly in the sense that we had this beautiful four bedroom condo on the lake, literally a block from the lake um, in an affluent area in the Chicagoland area. And from there, we lost everything, essentially. Thankfully, we had savings because we do believe in saving. And we moved to the DC area and had to put probably three quarters of my stuff in storage and um, moved with a baby to from I think it was like a 3300 square foot apartment, uh, you know, condo to our apartment was 978 square feet. So we were pretty impacted and, and living paycheck to paycheck because my husband did end up getting an SEC appointment. Um, he came here to just temporarily work on the Martha Stewart case for anybody that knows corporate securities. So we were like, oh, it can be like an interesting and we'll go from there, you know, because at the time, the job market in Chicago was not that the best. But the six months ended up turning into 17 years. So we were meant to be here. Um, He ended up doing well enough where the SEC gave him a full-time appointment and now he works in-house. So we were directly impacted. (laughs) So we were like living it up to like going, literally going on a um, cruise to Alaska in my early twenties, you know, not, not many people get to do that to now we have a baby, we're living paycheck to paycheck and we're living in a 900 square foot apartment. Yeah. It, impacted us. So we came and we're, what we're teaching our children is to never let somebody else dictate what your earnings are. So we're actually more of the entrepreneurial mindset in the sense that that's what we're kind of get the degrees, obviously have the education, but to the extent that you start a business or go to our big thing, whether they go to medical school, law school is to go ahead and get their MBA as well. And we say that because we really want them to know how to work for themselves. So we're ultimately at a situation, even my husband says right now, he gets paid very well, but he's like, I'm at the mercy of somebody else always. And I never want my children to be in that situation. So our mindset has changed. So our kids know, and we've started teaching them about business early, about savings, about investment. My son during COVID, my oldest is 17, took three certification programs in, at, at Yale. I'm totally name dropping in the investment because he was super obsessed with learning about how to invest and how to you know make money. And part of that is we do have the faith that God will provide. If you have good intentions, God will provide for you. Absolutely. And part of in providing for us is to give to other people. So we know that too. So charity is a huge thing for our family because we are now in a situation where we are blessed, we are super comfortable, but a lot of our money and our savings have come from the entrepreneurial aspect of our money management, not necessarily from the jobs that we have. So we, we very much include our children in that. I was telling Uzma, we had a, we have a couple of investment opportunities in Florida coming up. And my husband was like, maybe I'm going to start taking the older two with me so they can kind of see like the negotiations and all the things that come with that versus just getting the money or whatever, you know, they are very comfortable, but we want them to know that this is something we're working towards. And we want to start including them in the business aspect of what we do as a family. So we're, so we do believe that God gives us, God tests us. We never worry about it, but 
part of not worrying about it is also preparing for the future. And that's definitely something that we do for, I mean, even my seven-year-old understands about savings and part of our money always goes to charity. So that is a big thing, but savings, investing, they'll tell you what the quote for McDonald's is, how they're very much involved in all that. So we, because we were in a situation where we were, you know, we went from something to nothing and we had to build that back up together as, as a family, we never want to be in that situation again. Your experiences are wonderful because they really show the heterogeneity of any population. We always try to define populations, but clearly you each have your own experiences. Mm -hmm. And one thing I love about your brand of Mommy While Muslim is the graphic that you use. And I'll describe it probably imperfectly here, (laughs) but it's each of you standing together and one of you wears a hijab, Usma does, but Seba doesn't. And Mm -hmm. you've got the typical Starbucks looking like Mm -hmm. coffee cups, but one has the American flag on it. And one has, what is the other flag that's that's on? it's It's the universal sign of Islam, the crescent and the moon. And you'll see that in a lot of Islamic countries, they tend to incorporate that symbol as Islam. It's an Islamic symbol. So it's a very heterogeneous population. Uzma, I can't help but think as we have this conversation about what I hear from people of color around the United States, especially Black people will talk to their children and they'll teach them certain rules. Like if you get pulled over by a cop, Mm -hmm. keep your hands on the driver's wheel and be polite. I'm wondering if while your kids have been growing up, there are certain rules that you teach them as a Muslim as they go out into public and especially as they start conquering this idea of entering the workplace. Are there set rules that you pass down to them? Yeah, well, I think it even predated like one of their births because I scheduled inductions for all of them as much as the hospitals would allow. And for my second one, my OB was on call that, you know, specific days that week. And she wanted to schedule him for September 11th. And I said, maybe not for my kid. And she (laughs) stopped typing and looked up and goes, oh, of course. And that made me think, well, what do you mean? Of course, you know? (laughs) So there are conversations that I needed to prepare for myself as a mom, including, and I'm hoping that the slang kind of goes away, but that's the bomb, you know? So an early rule that I taught my children once verbal is we never say bomb in public. I don't care because you're with me. You can never say that it's a bad word. And, you know, I had two boys first, so they're very, they're very much boys, even though we had zero guns in the house and they weren't allowed to watch TV, they would run around chasing each other going pew, 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 because I don't know, there's something on the Y chromosome that teaches them that this is what you do to attack somebody else. And I'm um, cocking my forefinger and my thumb into Mm -hmm. a gun shape. And they did that without any outside stimulus or anybody teaching them anything. But their language certainly was something that we had to police very Mm -hmm. early. And, you know, at seven, start educating them on what ISIS was because their classmates were calling them that in Mm -hmm. school, probably innocently. But when they heard the word Muslim, fellow students heard or understood that to mean ISIS automatically. Mm -hmm. So laying out definitions and telling people that, telling our children 
they're not one and the same. That education had to start really, really early. In terms of rules going forward, now that they're older, it's more like this is the pattern of behavior that I expect from you as a Muslim man and as a Muslim woman to be. And you don't deviate from these paths because then you're going to be like these people that they are convinced. And by they, I mean the average American because, I mean, let's face it, Islamophobia is way more common than we we know. And it's so well-funded that the majority of people still think that that the way that terrorists behave is the way that you probably will. And they already know what your thoughts are because we already have the beginnings of, well, probably not the beginnings, but Big Brother is there. They already know what we think. They already have these, you know, preconceived notions about who we are. So you stay on the path prescribed by a religion and don't be like these people who have perverted it and don't be like these people who are trying to pervert it and make it what it's not. So it's more like a code of conduct that we we all grew up with anyway. So it's not anything new, but being in America, there's specific things mostly related to language where I'm like, you can't say that and don't ever say, you know, hijack, don't, it's not funny. You can go to jail for saying bomb on a plane, turn your phones on silent, your iPads on silent when you get on a plane, because we have a call to prayer app Mm -hmm. on it. And that dang thing will go off as soon as you're boarding on a plane. And you know, somebody's going to recognize the Arabic and say, oh my gosh, it's a call to, you know, attack. No, it's my call to prayer because it's time for me to pray. And I forget to silence my stupid phone. So things like that. You know, not huge things that affect our quality of life, but certainly how we operate comfortably. We have to be a lot more intentional about everything we do and don't do, I feel like, especially when the kids are with me because I'm visibly Muslim. Zeba, your brand is mommying while Muslim. How different is being a Muslim mom from any other American mom? Not very. And I, and I say this because through the commonality of motherhood, we want the same things for our children as everybody else does, right? We just do. We want them to be healthy, to be safe, you know, to, to ha- be able to get you out. We, and we have the same fears about our, you know, our communities that everybody else have. I want other kids to be successful, whether you're Muslim or not. You know, I want them to make sure that they have jobs available. Uh, I'm worried about climate change for them. These are all things that as mothers, we want for the, the kids and the children of the next generation, whether you're Muslim or not. So the name Momming Wa Muslim came up because Islam for, for me, and I would imagine for a lot of Muslims, is a way of life. It's a way of conducting yourself. It's how like I greet my neighbors. It's how I talk. Obviously, it's how I pray. There's rituals that come with every single religion, but it's how I greet somebody. It's if somebody approaches me aggressively, you know, Islam means peace. You know, I will get angry but I have to be mindful and I will always respond to you in peace because that is the basic tenet of our religion. And so mommy well Muslim is I'm doing all the same things as a mother, as any other person is, but where it comes from a spiritual perspective is I have this extra layer because Islam is very much a part of my life and being Muslim is very much a part of my life and my family's life and how we conduct every single thing and how we are that 
being Muslim is a major part of my motherhood. Uzma, I feel like we can put a line in the sand and say 9-11 radically affected what it was like to be a Muslim in America today. Let's talk about the current political climate and the pandemic. Have they had as extensive effects on Muslim families as other current events or other things going on? Yeah, I've said one of the advantages of the pandemic is, you know, it's pretty democratic, you know, aside from infecting people with pre-existing conditions, it, it, none of us is exempt from it. Mm -hmm. So I think that anybody who's lost a loved one this year to the pandemic, we can all identify because, you know, I know several households locally at our, in our masjid families who have lost multiple members to COVID-19. So I feel like it, it hasn't affected us any differently, but I would say that because 20% of Muslim Americans are of immigrant immigrant background, therefore they are people, a lot of them are people of color and not Anglo or, you know, Eurocentric peoples. Because they are people of color and because they have a higher propensity to have diabetes and those pre-existing conditions as well as lack of access to affordable easily obtainable healthcare, they have been affected probably as much as the Black population and the Native American populations in the United States, but we just don't have that data right now because we're just, I feel like, learning in the last couple of years to add that Middle Eastern North Africa mm -hmm. and that South Asian subcontinent into the Asia category when we're tracking ethnicities, you know, and you and I were speaking earlier about signing death certificates they're not asking for ethnicities of people that COVID-19 has killed. So that's not data that we can track, but that's how I see it affecting us. I do, I actually am pleased that we're all home and we're all safe with our families and possibly experiencing less Islamophobia because it's less safe to go out because of the pandemic. So... I started this episode by giving a personal story of what it was like for me to go through 9-11. And I can only imagine if it had such profound effects on me, what effects it would have in the Muslim community. So I wanted to thank you guys for coming on and talking about the physical, emotional, and financial impacts of such a big world event and it's wonderful to hear how, faced with this difficulties, you found a way to integrate something that happened that was so bad, I think, in general for our country, and yet be your individual selves to hold tightly to your faith and to be Americans, moms, and Muslims and pull them off. Perfectly. So thank you guys for coming on the show. I usually end each episode by asking what's up next in your life and where we can find you. But first, Zeba, I wanted to just for a moment talk about your podcast, Mommying While Muslim. I listened to a bunch of episodes and it hit me that maybe you guys are also developing a non-Muslim fan base because some of the things you talk about are important, I think, and they go beyond one specific religion or culture. 
It's funny because that is what happens. Uh, we actually have a larger non-Muslim fan base than a Muslim fan base, which is our blessing. And I'll, and I'll say that, you know, Uzma and I take pride in the fact that through our commonality, through the common language of motherhood, there are certain things we're all going to be thinking about, right? Pregnancies, what uh, we talk about so many different potty things. training, potty training, depression. postpartum depression. That is, that's universal, you know, sleep deprivation. Um, but we're obviously coming at it from a Muslim mom perspective and perhaps in listening to us versus going up to the, a random Muslim person, you feel like, okay, I can kind of listen, understand a little bit so that when I do meet a Muslim person, I'm coming with a little bit of um, information. And, and we don't pretend to be scholars. We're giving our individual life circumstance. And honestly, the beauty is Usman, I think, and, and do everything very differently. And that's, and that's also the beauty is we both represent Islam and we're very, very different. And we get along in our differences because the beauty of life is really, I think, in the margins. It's the differences that can unite people versus separating them. And that's how I choose to raise my children. You know, always look for that person that needs you to speak out for them. Always be you know, the cheerleader, um, and you happen to be Muslim, you know, and if you are the token Muslim friend, you know what, instead of being annoyed or angry, I'm going to be like, okay, I'm the token Muslim friend. And if that means you're listening to me on over audio or on your iTunes of choice, so that you can kind of have a little bit of an understanding, then I feel like, you know, we're doing our job. I like that. The beauty of life is in the margins. So Uzma, talk to us for Momming While Muslim. What is up next with you guys and your podcast? And where can we find you if we want to listen or learn more? Well, on an interface note, because both Zeba and I have very strong interface volunteer activities in which we Love the Company of Women are sponsoring an interface ladies tea on November 15th, and it will be virtual and socially distanced. And the link is in our on our page, our Facebook group, and they have the same names, Mommy Well Muslim. It's also on our Instagram on the link tree. So if you register for $10, you can get treats and meet lots of women of lots of different faiths and just have really beautiful conversations. And it's super short on a Sunday brunch time. So that's something that we're sponsoring. And then we are currently marketing this book, Love Meets Life. I was one of the contributing authors to this one. And so this can be purchased off the Mommy One Muslim website so that we can, you know, share the love of 53 authors who came together and found that that is what unites us. And as Zeba always says, we're more alike than different. These are some of the projects that we're working on right now. And we'll just continue to develop awesome content and continue reaching out to women, it seems, all over the world right now. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Zeba Hassan and Uzma Jaffrey. That's a wrap. It's a wonderful life. My wife and I watch this movie from time to time, especially at this time of year, and it's a great reminder of inspiration. You know, it's hard at this time of year for content producers. The reason why is everyone is going about their lives as we are, and yet 
We still have our podcasts to produce, our blogs to write, but obviously people are not listening and reading as much as they normally would be because of the holidays. This is good. This is right. We should be spending our time on the holidays with our family and friends, not necessarily locked in a room or a car somewhere listening to a podcast. On the other hand, if it is your podcast or blog and you are spending time during the holidays creating and producing content, it can be difficult spending the time and thought putting together your program, putting together your information to get out there to the world. So we're watching It's a Wonderful Life last night, and I was inspired. First of all, it's an amazingly well-put-together movie, right? We're talking about one that was made in the 1940s, and the characters and the plot lines and the dialogue is amazing. You can tell the intricacies of the writer's thought process as they put down these words that each character would say. And then there's the general inspiring tone of the movie. The fact that our lives matter and everything we do may seem futile at times or it might feel like we are working towards something that no one notices. But when you take us as a whole, our effect on those people around us, we matter. And I think it's really good to remember that at this time of year. The holidays can be fabulous and lovely, but they can also be difficult for a lot of people, especially this year during the pandemic and the fact that we can't be with our families in the same ways we could before. We can't get together as friends or communities. This is a definitely strange year. I encourage you to go watch It's a Wonderful Life. Remember the role you play in your household, in your family, in your community. Realize how the world would be radically different without you. And rejoice in the fact that even during difficult times as these, you matter. We all matter. We make a difference in this world. And all of you matter to me. Here at the Earn and Invest podcast, we are seeing the end of another year, and I'm thankful and grateful to have you all along with me for the ride. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. See you on New Year's Eve. Thank you so much. Awesome. Are we allowed to talk? Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. I was like, are we allowed? Are we allowed? What oh, are we that was fun. That was a lot of fun. And I felt like I really got a chance to cover a bunch of different topics. Um, but to get at your story and pull finances oh, into that. it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't want it to overwhelm it either. Like, I, yeah. I think the story transcends finances, yeah. yes. um, which I have no problem with. My, my podcast doesn't have to be 100% Let's Talk episodes, Money. I listened to the Paul Bollinger or Bollinger yeah, episode Paul and Ollinger. then the student loan one. And I was like, they're talking a lot about money and I don't understand. <laughs> I didn't know where to start reading. <laughs> yeah, it depends. I, I like to... You know, I'd like to surprise my listeners mm-hmm. too. So I don't, 
I don't ever want, my goal is that you never exactly know what you're going to get every time you hit play, but hopefully you really liked it in the end. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. yeah. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know so what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. And I so, like it. I like it. This is fun. Thank you so much. And, you know, thoughtful questions. Love it. You know, I have to say, when you started reading your story, I felt, you know, that, and I don't know if Zeba felt the same way, but every time I hear a 9 11 story or a commemoration as a Muslim American, even though I've got that American tag, I feel an immediate from inside. It's like right here, like, <laughs> like a, a suspicion. Maybe it's PTSD. Yeah, uh, I, I remember one day I had to give seven talks on the anniversary of 9-11 to an 11th grade classroom. And over and over, they were showing the footage because these mm-hmm. kids had never seen it, right? They were yes. in 11th grade. So, um, or no, it was like 10th grade. So they'd never, ever seen it um, live like we had. And it was seven times watching it and hearing the narrator of the commemorative thing talk about it. And it was so painful that I had to step outside and cry. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the first time I had since it had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still that defensiveness and that trauma where I'm like, on one hand, can we just stop talking about it? But on the other, it's so critical. And like you said, such a point in time that changed our mm-hmm. lives, mm-hmm. Um, that it's important to teach in history. I just, I think there, there has to be a, a more culturally sensitive way and I haven't figured it out yet. So if yeah. you find anything, let me know. My well, point, I, go ahead. No, I, I was just saying, honestly, like, I, I don't necessarily feel that way. And I feel like you have to keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, like when you talk about the Holocaust, you talk about these, you have to, because like the whole point is if we forget history, we will repeat it. And so, and I, and I, that's just human nature, sadly. Like, I, I feel like if you, you, you read or you study history, patterns of behavior, keep coming up. And so in knowing that and in, in making those connections and honestly in teaching our children, cause like I said, I, I have a 2003 baby is my first one. Right. And, and these, that generation of kids for Muslims specifically are carrying the weight of an event that they have never witnessed. Yeah. Right. So as parents, it is our duty specifically as Muslim parents to talk about it, talk about the perversion of our religion, right? Because there are people that pervert it for their own political behalf and and educate our own children. And in educating our own children, hopefully we're educating other people. And it does every year I get sad because they do show the things. My kids are now old enough where they're asking me questions like, do you remember? I'm like, yeah, we were watching this live, you know, and, and, and for our generation, granted, you know, we're not like, uh, uh, like, you know, the world war two or world war one generation. That was the first significant thing that we saw on our soil that impacted us physically, emotionally. Um, and for us religiously, like we had that added, um, added step to it. So I feel like it does suck Uzma, And I know I get where you're coming from, but I'm also like, got to keep talking about it because if we don't talk about it i'm fearful you know it'll happen again i i included that story as the introduction for a very specific purpose and it's not it's not 100 obvious or clear but personally why i did is 
that story was written and to me is a story about someone who was so lost that they couldn't even be in touch with what was happening in the world, even when something this big happened. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of a flipping of the switch of the meaning of 9-11 at that moment to me. And so I wanted to start with that story because I also wanted to flip that switch again and take what people out there listening to this, their whole concept of what 9-11 meant, and then see it through your eyes. Yeah of a Muslim in America who all of a sudden had their lives changed based on nothing to do with them, but that had generational effects. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's generational trauma, right? Your kids are faced with generational trauma from something you face. And then to then contrast that to your parents who came here before, it's it's just a very interesting story of how trauma affects us. And that was kind of why I led with that because it was this whole idea of, let me change your lens of seeing this, turn it Mm -hmm. around and have you see it from a different angle. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.